The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, everybody. My name is Joni Siegel. Welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Today's episode is episode number 195. When a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, the myriad of choices of treatment can be overwhelming. Narconon Ojai is a residential treatment facility that, that addresses the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction with a proven, holistic, drug-free, evidence-based, step-by-step program designed to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, call 866-231-5924. As I said, today is episode number 195, and it's New Year's Eve. Our wish for you for 2021 is that you are happy, healthy, and sober. That's always our wish, but especially tonight. Today we have an interview with a lady named Tiffany Jenkins. Tiffany is the funny lady behind Juggling the Jenkins. She has over 4.5 million Facebook followers and counting. Tiffany is a wife, mother, best-selling author, content creator, and recovering addict. Although best known for her funny viral Facebook and YouTube videos, Tiffany is incredibly passionate about bringing awareness to mental illness. She speaks shamelessly, openly, and honestly about her past and addiction, as well as her struggles with depression and anxiety, and has been featured on national TV shows like The Today Show and The Doctors. Without further ado, let's talk to Tiffany Jenkins. Tiffany Jenkins, thank you so much for being willing to tell your story on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for asking me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, that's very kind. Tell me what we usually start with is I know that you are in recovery or you're a recovered addict. How did you get started with drugs? What was your story, your backstory there? Um, When I first started using drugs, I was pretty ignorant as to what exactly an addict was and like what I was doing. When I was a kid, I grew up in a home with a stepfather who was a police officer. And so he would come home from work and tell me stories about drug addicts and homeless people. And um, I had this image in my head of what that looked like. And it was never me. At that time, I was captain of the cheerleading squad. I was a really good student. I had goals and dreams. And um, I always felt a little anxious and depressed during my younger years, but I didn't have a name for it. I didn't know what it was. I never talked about it. And so when I got to the age of 18, it was my senior year of high school and I was hanging out with these people and one of the guys offered me a sip of alcohol. I had always said no. I had always always turned down partying and things like that. But on this day, I said yes. And it was like the minute the alcohol touched my bloodstream, it was over. It altered the course of my life forever because suddenly I felt free. I didn't feel awkward or uncomfortable or out of place. I felt free. And so um, I wanted to feel that again all the time. And I began skipping school. And then eventually I dropped out my senior year of high school. I had made it all the way through. And then my senior year, I'm like, all right, that's it. I've had enough, I guess. Um, And then the drugs, I mean, eventually 
came it that the drinking escalated to smoking and then the smoking escalated to my drug of choice, which was opiates. And again, at the time, I had no idea that you could be addicted. I had no idea what withdrawal was. And so I had been doing them for fun. And then I started doing them all the time. And then I started doing them every day. And then one day I didn't have them. And my body felt so sick. I felt like I was getting the flu. And I told my friend that I couldn't come hang out. And she said, it's probably because you hadn't had a pill today. Take one and you'll be fine. And I took one and instantly all of the pain went away. And that was when I stopped doing it for fun and started doing it because I, I had to do it in order to not feel like I was dying. Wow. You know, you, you, you have emphasized a point that we've talked about many times on the podcast is that I think a lot of people still think that when you talk about a drug addict, you're talking about the homeless guy under the bridge. Seriously. And I, I don't think I was fully aware that it affects all aspects of our community, no matter your economic status, your religious status, your race, any of that. But it, you, you bring home that point that we kind of all kind of had that idea. When you say addict, you're talking homeless under the bridge and, and there you go. And you would never be homeless and under the bridge. Right. Until I was, you know, We always say that could never be me. And that's how I kind of gauged my addiction the whole time. It was like, well, at least I'm not snorting these things, or at least I'm not, you know, using them intravenously. And then eventually I was, well, at least I'm not selling my body for drugs until I was. And that's how it goes. I think is the more desperate you become, the more your morals and your values dropped. And I found that happening very quickly. Um, the more that I used to me, it felt like I was, and I use this analogy so much. I feel like a repeater, but I felt like I was the tin man and the drugs were my oil. And if I didn't have it, I froze up and I couldn't function and I couldn't do anything. And all it took was one little pill to be okay and make it through the day. And that was my goal for years was I'm just going to get some today and then I'll be clear-headed enough to make a plan and get out of this mess. But that day never came. Right. I think that, and again, we've talked about this before, but I think that people who have not experienced addiction, they look at that and they go, why can't she just stop? Why can't she just stop doing it? But what I think is not understood is that when when addiction happens it's it's not just mental and it's not just spiritual it's not just making a certain choice there's a physical addiction there mm-hmm. and when you stop you feel horrible and who nobody wants to feel horrible do you know what i mean i think i think sometimes people don't get it and they think oh just stop just right. don't do it anymore and i don't blame those people for thinking that because by all outward appearances Of course, if you're in so much agony, if you're so hurt and if your life is such a mess, then just stop. Like, I totally get it until I was in the shoes of the addict. And once it gets, I feel like there's a lot more education now. I feel like we all have the internet and cell phones and we could research this stuff and see that it's not good for us. So the decision to initially begin using would have to be based on the fact that you already know what you're getting yourself into. And I'm not trying to use this as an excuse for why I started. Um, 
but again, like I, I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have the internet growing up. I didn't see a lot of that because I was always around the good kids who were doing the right thing and football players and cheerleaders. And I, um, I think that there is a huge misconception and that's kind of like what I want to do is to explain to people from the perspective of an addict, what it's like and why it's so hard once you're in there to get out. Yep. And that's why, that's why I, I love you for being willing to be on the podcast and share your story. Let me ask you, so you're 18 and you're a senior in high school and you're starting to drink did your family, were they aware of it? Did they notice it? Did they? I, I think that my parents noticed that there was a change going on, but honestly, at this point I was kind of on my own already. I had rebelled and started, um, my grades started dropping. I ended up quitting the cheerleading squad and my mom kind of gave me an ultimatum and she's like, you either need to raise your grades to a 3.0 or you got to move out. And I was like, well, I'm out of here then. And I went and lived with my father, who at the time was also an addict and an alcoholic. And so I was pretty free. And he was such a cool dude. Like he loved me and, but didn't really know how to be a dad. So he was kind of like a friend and this is in no way his fault. He was doing the best he could. Um, but living with somebody who wasn't always there mentally or physically made it really easy for me to continue in this lifestyle. I can imagine Okay. So you, you, let me see where we're at now. Did you go to college at all? No, no, no. no. I ended up getting my GED, but I never went to college after high school. I ended up after I dropped out, I was kind of like couch surfing, if you will. Like I would go and hang out with this group of people and party and smoke and do drugs. And then I would go over here and stay here and party here. And then me and my best friend ended up getting an apartment together and our rent was $75 a week because we lived with her brother and we were both waitresses. So we made that in one shift and we would pay him the rent and then spend the rest of our income just partying. And um, my mom ended up getting pretty sick in uh, 2009. She was diagnosed with lung cancer at age 46 and Again, like it was too much for me to cope with. I didn't know how to handle it or deal with it because I was never um, aware of how to cope with my emotions. So I, I got even deeper into the addiction. And then she passed away five months after her diagnosis, oh. just super quick, oh, I'm super sorry. sudden. Thank I'm you. Sorry. Yeah. And I, I use that as an excuse to get worse. And I, I found out I was getting a trust fund from my mother and like I had the mental wherewithal to realize that if I got this money, I would end up killing myself. So I went to my mom's boss who was in charge of the trust fund and told him for the first time, I think I need help. Um, I think I have a problem with addiction. And so he paid, he took that trust fund money and put me in a rehab. But the thing is like, I went to the rehab because I thought that's what my mom would have wanted. I thought it's what I was supposed to do. I didn't want to. And so the things that people were trying to teach me were going in one ear and out the other. And I was super defiant. And it's because I thought I was smarter than them. I thought I could continue to drink and continue to smoke weed. And as long as I didn't do the pills, I would be okay. I mean, so much so that the night I graduated the rehab, I ended up celebrating my graduation by getting hammered with another girl from the rehab. 
And that's how sick I was. I was like, well, I'm not doing my drug of choice. And that's <laughs> three months after that is when I was out at a bar one night and met a police officer and he was interested in dating me. And I thought to myself, well, this is perfect. If I'm with him, I can't go back to using the pills um, because he's a cop, obviously. So this will be what I need. I thought his love would be enough for me. And we started dating and, and his love was not enough when I was presented with a pill. In that moment, I had a choice to do it or not. And I chose to do it. And then when I went over to his house, expecting him to break up with me once he realized I was high, he didn't. He didn't see it and I was able to hide it. And that was the night that I started my double life, if you will. Wow. How old were you then, Tiffany? I was in my early, um, I'd say 24, 25 okay. years old. Yeah. And um, me and him began dating. And like I said, we had been together for about three months and when I relapsed. And I was hiding it from him. And even when we moved in together and what ultimately ended up happening was for like two years, I hid my drug addiction from him while living wow. with him. And he didn't have a clue. I, you know, when I think back, I think that he had to have some idea. It was his job for a living to find high people. And I think that when love is involved, you want so desperately to believe that the life that you're living is what it is and that somebody isn't that broken, you know, that somebody wouldn't do that to you. And so you kind of get these blinders on. And also I was a really good manipulator and liar. I mean, I, I would plan my lies out days in advance. If I knew I was going to steal one of his tools to pawn for drug money, I would, you know, start my lie on Monday so that by the time it got to Wednesday and I took it, I could be like, see, I told you we should stop leaving that side door unlocked. I knew somebody was going to come in and break in eventually. And my mind was always racing and always scheming and always plotting. And I ended up taking so many things around the house and pawning them because I didn't know what a pawn shop was. And once I found out that you could pawn something and get it back, I was like, this is magical. Like, this is great. Uh, but you, I never got anything back and I ran out of things to pawn. And that's when I got really desperate. And that's when I staged a burglary at our home because he had money in his wallet that I needed. And there was no logical explanation from how the night before to the next morning, the money could have gone missing. And, but so I, I literally broke our back door. I staged this whole thing and I went to work with my drugs. And then, um, I also took some of his guns and ended up selling those to get drugs. But I just kept telling myself, um, I just need enough to come up with a plan and a way to get these guns back. But the police showed up at my house investigating the burglary before I even had a chance. And they came to the conclusion that it was me and arrested mm. me. Wow. Wow. And what happened then? Well, I went to jail completely ignorant as to how it worked. I envisioned the day he found, because I knew it was only a matter of time before he found out the truth about who I was. And I thought that on that day, we would like sit down on the couch and cry and, you know, he would get me help and it would be okay. I didn't count on his police captain finding out before he did, bringing the news to him and then having no choice but to arrest me. Right. And so um, I was I was taken to jail and still I thought I was going to get out that night. I didn't know how jail worked, but that is not how it worked. And I was charged with about 20 felonies and I spent 120 days in jail. 
Wow. Yeah, and you're how it, old now? I'm 35 now. 35. Okay. So on um, November 26th, I just celebrated eight years clean. Wow. Well done. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well done. That's huge. Eight years. Thank you. Wow. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narcanon Ojai, visit their website at narcanonojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So let me just backtrack, sorry, to cut you off. No. So you you went to jail. Was that what you would call your point of no return, where you realized you had to get clean and sober, or did it even continue after jail? And what was your rock bottom? Yeah. So I, I had been in jail for a few days, and the drugs were leaving my system, and I had so much shame and guilt, and the withdrawals were so painful that I actually um, tried to end my life in my jail cell. It wasn't like a cry for attention. It wasn't a woe is me thing. I felt like I, I had a mission and I had to be done. I had to be out of this body. I couldn't wait another second. Like I just, when I looked towards the future, it was like so dark and I didn't have the energy to think about dealing with the consequences of my action. I didn't have it in me. So I tried to end my life and they found me and took me to suicide watch and uh, stripped me of my clothes and my glasses and anything else that I could hurt myself with. And I I detail, uh, detoxed in a glass cell, just completely made of glass so that people could walk by and look in to make sure I wasn't hurting myself. And I felt like a zoo animal. And that was when I was like, this is crazy. I'm no longer human. Like I am a number. I am not Tiffany anymore. I'm just a number. And um, it wasn't until Christmas my father came to visit me and it was the first visitor that I had had. And it felt like such a gift to see like a face from home because I had adapted to this new life of jail and then seeing someone there. And my dad told me that he had been diagnosed with cancer while I had been arrested, but the doctor told him that he had to quit drinking. So my father, the day he visited me was 62 days clean and sober himself. Wow. Yeah. And he said, listen to me, Tiffany, 
if I can do this, you can do this. So you need to get your SHIT together and get out of here and do the right thing. So we could take this recovery journey together as a family. Wow. Yeah. And that's when that was the point of no return really for me. That was when I said, okay, I got to do this. There's a person out there that still loves me, still sees me as Tiffany and somehow has faith that I can do this. So if this person can love me, I can try to love me too. So I started writing to rehabs and asking the judge to give me um, rehab. And apparently my ex-boyfriend who I royally screwed over had also reached out to the uh, judge and asked him if I can go to rehab. And, And then part of my sentence was you can either go to the six months residential treatment center and have three years of probation, or you do two more months in jail and then have three years of probation. So everybody was like, uh, take the shorter time. Don't go to a rehab for six months. You've been being told what to do for the past four months. And I knew that, um, the only chance of me getting out of here and never returning was to go to the rehab. So that's what I chose. And, um, I wanted it this time. Yep. And I, and that's the key difference. That is, that's what makes all the difference is you, it doesn't like nobody can solve the problem for you and nobody can push you into solving it for yourself if you don't want to. And you, you reach that point. I mean, like I say, very well done you. Thank you so much. I, I feel weird taking credit. Like I know that I, I put a lot of work in, but also I truly believe that I, I would not be here if it wasn't for the people that I met in recovery, the people who helped carry me until I was ready to walk, the people who met up with me randomly for coffee when I felt like I was crazy and losing my mind. If it wasn't for the halfway house that I moved into after rehab and those women who lifted me up every single day, um, there's something bigger than me, something stronger than me that um, helped me along the way. And I, I wouldn't have been able to do it alone, truly. I I think that's huge. And I think, you know, that's one of the things we put out so often to our listeners is that you're not alone. There Mm. are people out there that are willing to help you. And even though I agree with you that those people, you know, definitely helped you along the way. Ultimately, Tiffany, you're the one that wakes up every morning and makes that choice and makes that decision. And that's why would I say, well done you. That's why I say that. (laughs) Thank you so much. I, I mean, appreciate look, look at what you've done with your life. Look at where you're at. Tell about where you're at today. You Are you married? I am. So this is part of my story, which a lot of people know by now. But when I was living in the halfway house, there was a boy living in another halfway house. And um, we started dating. And he ended up getting me pregnant like two months after we knew each other. And I was still living in the halfway house. And um, we decided to get married. And so we got married five months after knowing each other. And when I say knowing each other, I mean, like we were living apart in separate halfway houses. We would see each other at like meetings, Um, but we got married and um, everybody said we're nuts and we're crazy. And we were for sure. But um, we've been married for almost seven years. We have a six-year-old, a four-year-old and his daughter from a previous relationship lives with us. And life is incredible. We own our own home. We purchased our first home this year. Um, We pay our bills on time. (laughs) We have gas in the car. (laughs) We we get to uh, wake up every morning, you know, free of the grip of addiction and just do 
wherever, whatever our heart wants, you know, wherever we're led, we're not tied to a certain place or a certain person because of addiction. And it's better than the house, better than the cars, better than all of that is the fact that um, we are free. It's a beautiful thing. You just made me a little emotional. Sorry. I can totally Aww. relate. And, you know, I just, I, I just respect and admire you for coming through it. I know I'm not, I'm not, a recovered addict, but I know from having talked to as many as I have, it's not easy to come through something like that. And then to not only come through it, but to turn your life so completely around with a beautiful family, you're juggling the Jenkinses, right? <laughs> that's, what, that's what you call it. <laughs> yeah. It is. It's definitely a juggling yes. act. I know that. Um, yeah, that's, that's amazing. I, I really, thank you. It's awesome. Thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. And I'm, I have a question. You're not a recovering addict. No. But you have a addiction podcast. What? Let me tell, let me tell you I why. Should've... It's okay. Yes, please. Steve, Steve and I, um, I have a, we were former marketers and we were introduced to the medium of podcasting and thought, oh, that's kind of a, an interesting way to reach a lot of people. And then, um, he, he said to me one day, he said, you know, one of the biggest problems facing society is addiction, is drug addiction. And even though I can say that I don't have a family member that's addicted, addiction affects me. It affects mm. every single person on the planet. It's, it's not just you who used to be one. It's not just your husband who used to be one. It's not just your parents who had a child. It's every single one of us. And we started into this, um, and we have learned so much about it. And I was just going to say in the past four years, you had yep. to, it must've been crazy. The things that you've learned. I think it's so amazing that you're doing this. Well, thank you. We are, we are passionate about it because we have talked, I have talked, interviewed mothers who have lost their children to addiction. Mm -hmm. I think very early on, we talked to one young recovered addict and he he talked about how when he first, I, this is not my interview, so I'll make this quick. He talked about when he very, he was in Boston and his mother found a rehab, actually a Narconon, our Narconon sponsors in California, but this was in Baton Rouge. So in Boston, she found it and he was going to go to this rehab and she took him to the airport and he turned around to give her a hug. And she said, oh no, I'm going with you. He said, we were on the plane and the plane was completely empty and she wouldn't sit anywhere but right next to me. He said, we got off the plane and I turned to hug her and she said, no, 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 I'm going with you. And he said, it wasn't until he was at the door of withdrawal that she hugged him and started to cry. And I went, you know, I don't, I don't want anybody else to experience that. I don't want, and, and then we've talked to mothers who've lost their kids to overdoses and I don't want anybody else to experience that. And so what you're doing, willing to share your story, the other people that we've talked to on the podcast, whether it's, you know, law enforcement or people in, with support groups, you're doing something about it, Tiffany. You're not just, I mean, I, I'm not just in recovery because there's no just about it. I know that. Right. But you're taking your story to all of the followers that you have on social media. And that's huge because you're giving hope to people when you do that. And so anyway, that's why thank we you this. so much. I really appreciate <laughs> it. And I also got to say that I never would have done this had it not been for 
the amazing reception of the audience when I first started talking about addiction. Had I been met with anger and hatred, I probably would have wilted and just <laughs> shut my computer down. But because there's so many people who are so empathetic and understanding and loving and willing and wanting to learn, it made it easy for me to put myself out there. Of course, you know, every now and then there's people who are angry, but it's from a place of hurt and I understand that. Um, but the majority of the people, and that's why I try to tell people who are struggling, I think you'd be amazed at how many people are understanding and more loving and non-judgmental than, than you realize. I think it's true. And I think it's because so many of us are affected by it. Yeah. And maybe we don't talk about it, but I know that there are a lot of people who are affected by it. And, and I think that there is way more understanding today than there was. And largely, I think, because of what you do and others who get on the, the lines of the media and talk about it, you know? That's awesome. Thank you. So you wrote a book. I did. Tell me about it, your book. It wasn't my plan to write the book. I was, I was going to be a blogger when I first started all this. So I was writing and I released, I decided to write about my time in jail because I thought it would be an interesting perspective from those who had never been. And I was releasing a chapter a week and people were like going crazy. <laughs> They're like, when are, is chapter four going to be out? Like, this is so incredible. And I, uh, got an email from a woman who was like, my son is in jail and I would give anything to send this to him. I think it would help him. And that was when I realized maybe I can make this into a book. Maybe I can figure out a way to do this. So I took all the blogs off the website and compiled them into a book and continued writing. And I self-published it myself on Amazon in 2017. <laughs> I was working for a carpentry company at the time. Um, and my husband, it's so funny. My husband was like super hesitant to give me the $1,500 to pay an editor to go through this book. But I, I begged and I was like, please, you know, I just have a good feeling. And when I released it, we made that money back in the first hour. And I ended up selling 50,000 copies on my own. Wow. Um, and, and I'm not trying to bra brag. I'll get to the point. And then it was picked up by uh, Penguin Random House and they republished it and it became a bestseller. And um, the only reason I'm saying that is because like, again, I dropped out of high school. I was done for. And if somebody like me can take a story that I hid for so long because of shame and turn it into something that's in the hands of all these people, anybody can do it. Right. And that's, a, and that's a great message. I mean, that, you know, that's, that's another thing that we try to say, you know, if you, if you look at what the people that we've talked to, what they've gone through you know, if they can recover, you can recover, you know, right. I mean, and that's, and I know it's not easy and that may sound a little bit flip, but no, it is, it is true though. And that's something that I stress is that like, we all have, and it, it's such a weird analogy, but for some reason I say it all the time, like we're all made of bones and muscles and blood and we have brains and most, you know, eyes, some of us don't, but for the most part, we're all the same. We're all human beings. And there's nobody who has extra special DNA that allows them to recover um, or get clean. Everybody has the same. So literally if this person can do it, as a human being, you can too, as a human being, because there's no difference. The only difference is willingness to do whatever it takes. Yep. Tiffany, do you do uh, public speaking at all? I do. I, oh. um, I speak at, not since COVID, but right. I speak at um, high schools and jails and rehab centers. And I actually had uh, my own tour last year 
where I got to travel around the US and go inside theaters and talk to people. And it was really cool. And cool. I can't wait to do it again. Exactly. So how if somebody wanted to book you as a speaker or get more information about you as a speaker, where would they go? What would they do? Oh, um, you could just email me. I do have I have like an email form for speakers, but we're in the process of revamping my website. And by we, I mean me and my husband because we don't have a team or anything. <laughs> um, but you can just email me at Tiffany at juggling the And Tiffany? I would forward the email to my um it sounds fancier than it is. I have a speaking agent, but it's through the book company and they automatically assign you one when you write a book. So <laughs> it's not cool. like I'll forward you to my agent. It's not <laughs> like that. <laughs> okay. So it's Tiffany at jugglingthejenkins.com. Awesome. Tiffany, if you had just one message to give to the people listening, what would that be? Um, I guess the message would be different depending on the person listening, but as a general overall message, it would be that um, back in the jail when I tried to end my life and I tried to imagine what my future was, it was dark and sad and empty. I had no way of knowing back then the beautiful things that were waiting for me down the road. I could never have imagined and so if you are in a dark place and you feel like there's nothing ahead, you have to know that there are gifts waiting for you. There's a beautiful life waiting for you. You just have to reach out for help and do whatever it takes to get to those gifts. Perfect. Thanks. Tiffany, thank you so much for telling your story on our podcast today. By the way, this episode, even though we're recording here in December, goes up on New Year's Eve. Ah, start of a new year. Exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. And I think your story is absolutely perfect for starting the new year. Oh, thank you. This year is going to be our year. It's, it's going to be a good year. I can feel it. Happy new year. If you're listening. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for listening or watching our podcast today. I want to wish you all a happy new year. I want 2021 to be the best year you have ever experienced. If you have a loved one that needs to get into recovery, let's do it now. Let's make this their first year of sobriety. If you yourself need to get clean and sober, let's do it now. Let's start the new year clean and sober and let's make 2021 your first year of sobriety and then contact us and we'll tell your story. Happy New Year. We'll be back again in the new year with our next episode. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.